Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 28. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about the archaeological spectrum. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Dineta and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland, as well as the Nooch or Ute treaty lands. So I'm really excited to have Rebecca Heidenreich on the show today. She and I actually met while she was on a CRM excavation project, actually, um, not too long ago on the Navajo Nation. And I'm excited to have her on the show because she's really done work in all kinds of settings and, um, you know, from the academic setting to CRM to tribal settings to, um, you know, other land management settings. So she really covers the spectrum and we talk a decent amount about CRM because, uh, some of you have requested more CRM archaeologists and we are working on it. Um, so this will we'll start getting that conversation going for those of you that have been itching for that. So thank you, Rebecca, for coming on the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Shall we start with the traditional question that we usually start with, which is, how did you get into this work? Okay. Well, yeah, I grew up on the Navajo Reservation in Dohachi, New Mexico, and, you know, I wasn't really aware of the fact that I was Navajo, you know, I was indigenous because, you know, I was just living, living my life. It was actually my sister who started picking up books on Egyptology and, you know, I was pretty interested in it just because of the religious aspect of it. And from there, you know, I just kind of always wanted to be an archaeologist, you know, ever since I was a middle school student and high school, I, I knew that I wanted to do archaeology. And the more I looked into it, you know, I was, I became more aware of like indigenous rights and kind of like the dynamic here on the reservation versus like elsewhere. Cause you know, we would travel with my family outside of the reservation and, you know, I could definitely tell that there was a difference in, you know, just interaction, social interaction. And so, you know, I just, I really wanted to study that more because, you know, I grew up from um, within a traditional family. So I knew that culture was important. I knew my identity was important. And so I knew archeology span was taboo in the sense of, you know, ancestral Puebloans and Asazi. And I don't know, I just kind of was always drawn to it. And I wanted to always kind of change that, that notion of it being taboo. And I just kind of, you know, fully engaged myself into it and, you know, got to this point in my life. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that you approached it almost from two exact opposite places. Like, first, just this intellectual curiosity about Egypt but then later coming back and and realizing how directly applicable it was to your life and and how you thought you know things could be better in the world basically definitely as far as like the social justice aspect and things like that yeah, yeah that's interesting yeah because yeah. um you know yeah, i can remember being a little girl and going outside the reservation and you know, I could definitely feel, you know, you, you know, in your social interactions, you can normally feel vibrations and vibes off other people. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I went off the reservation, I definitely could feel that, especially, you know, with the interactions between my mother and, you know, other people. It really kind of stressed me out as a child. Um, And I, I knew that there was something there, you know, and I didn't really have that full on education of, you know, the Navajo political system and cultural ways and stuff like that. Um, Because, you know, I was only a little child. um, And so I definitely could feel, you know, tension and kind of like this, like, I don't know what it is. Like, I wish I had a better word for it. Um, You know, it just, it definitely just made me feel awkward and weird um, versus, you know, when I'm I'm at home everyone speaks the same language, everyone more or less looks the same, you know, there's that same, like, respect that people have for one another, for the elders, and especially for the land, you know, and just, just life in general. And, you know, with that, I, I really wanted to see how that was in the archaeological setting, because people in the field of archaeology, they're essentially studying us, you know, studying our ancestors and the land and social dynamics within, you know, indigenous lands. And, you know, it just, it always kind of puzzled me how, you know, why, why aren't Native people the ones doing this, you know? And Mm -hmm. that always like really bothered me. So I kind of just like, fully forced myself to go into archaeology you know and of course I wanted to you know like I had that heart for it and you know I come from strong people a long line of strong people and it just like really made me want to like represent my voice and my people and kind of like who we are you know Mm -hmm. in publications Mm -hmm. and how we are in real life and how do you feel like that was received back home I mean you mentioned the, the taboos and things like that. Um, did people come around? Well, it's funny because it's taboo, yes, in the sense of, you know, when people think of archaeology, they think of burials. Um, and I mean, that is one aspect of it. But, you know, I had a lot of um, people say, well, why are, why are you doing that? You know, you shouldn't be messing around with that stuff. You should just leave it alone and leave it as it is. And, um, you know, like I heard that, um, I understood where they were coming from just because, you know, my family's traditional and I fully understood, you know, their concerns. But, you know, being an educated person who's also Indigenous, I saw the difference, you know, and um, it's just like, why, why, why is it that we can't study ourselves? Why do we have to be the study subjects? And that really bothered me because in my mind and my spirit, I know how intelligent I am. And even people on the reservation who haven't had education, proper education, Um, students who were in the Indian boarding schools, they're intelligent. They're very intelligent. A lot of our elders, you know, they're very intelligent in what they speak and the way they communicate and just how they are as individuals. And that frustrated me because I knew this, but yet it was the whole, you know, outsider looking in, they're the ones studying us and Mm -hmm. you know like I didn't want that anymore I wanted to be the one to write a paper and say well these are my thoughts with the ethnographic you know ideas but also you know archaeology and kind of collaborate that because that's a major thing Mm -hmm. that archaeology is trying to move away from you know representing more of the the cultural aspect of humans yeah absolutely so on that note, would you rather write about your own people or would you rather write about other people? I wanted to do that. I wanted to write about, you know, the archaeology here. Mm-hmm. But more or less, it's not so much about the writing and, you know, the doing archaeology. It's about the idea 
of culture, humans, the scientific methods and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is one thing that always like got to me, the fact that anthropology is the main study and archaeology is only a subfield of anthropology. Mm-hmm. And yet there are, you know, a lot of scientists, archaeological scientists who don't really incorporate, you know, they don't incorporate mm-hmm. ethnography. I mean, again, I'm an ethnographer by training. I work in CRM with mostly archaeologists, but I definitely obviously know what you mean that, um, you know, the, the human side really gets ignored sometimes. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've had, um, I mean, first of all, I just get, even people that know me pretty well will sometimes introduce me as an archaeologist just because there's not this understanding that there are other, like, professions within CRM or mm-hmm. other ways to approach heritage. Right. And then, um, or I remember not too long ago, I had somebody tell me that until they met me, they didn't realize that ethnographer was like a thing that still existed. (laughs) Basically they thought of ethnographers as just like the ethnographers from a hundred years ago that people in archeology span always use for, you know, quote unquote ethnographic analogy, Mm -hmm. which is always kind of bizarre for me because like, first of all, there are still ethnographers out there, but mostly we're not just like sitting there watching people and looking how they like exactly make pots or things like that. You know what I mean? Like Boaz I mean, or Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not just sitting there. So people will come to me and, and ask me more like, you know, oh, do you have any ethnographic resources on, you know, like pot making? And it's like, that's not really what we do. Like <laughs> CRM ethnography today is it's really about more documenting and telling people's story of their connection to place or certain places or things like that it's it's yeah like boaz or um or just trying to get down every minute detail of how something was done because we feel like indigenous people are about to die off mm-hmm. you know that's not i mean i hope that's not ethnography today i i hope there's not ethnographers out there still doing that it's funny all right so you talked a little bit about the spark and the specific challenges you've had with anthropology and archaeology. How did you go from this first interest in archaeology to becoming a professional in the field? What were your next steps? Let me just say that I had an amazing mentor, uh, Dr. Judson Finley from Utah State University. He he really helped me a lot because when I first met him and we engaged in a conversation, I told him, you know, hey, this I want to do. I want to do this. I want to do this and to do that. And he's like, OK, let's do it. <laughs> and we did. Um, <laughs> when I was a freshman that summer, I was a freshman in college. I, you know, went into my field school. So that really triggered kind of my path in archaeology. Um, like I said, I fully immersed myself. But as a freshman, that's impressive. I feel like most people don't do field school until later. Exactly. Like you knew what you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of odd because I'm surprised not a lot of other students, you know, I, I'm surprised that students don't do that more often because how are you mm-hmm. going to fully understand what you're learning in the classroom if you don't really know what's going on in the field? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of like a major thing. Like, how do you even know if you like it if you're not, you know, working in the field? Because the the dynamics completely different. Like the stuff that you learn in the classroom, it's not always going to be the same in the field. One hundred percent. Yeah. But I met him and he helped me. And it just went from there. And Yeah. It was, it's really been an amazing experience. Um, it really has. Um, I'm just so happy. And him and I are just like, we're really close. We're, he's a great guy. He, um, he worked a lot on the Crow Reservation. The cool thing about the Crow Reservation is they actually 
hire tribal members to do archaeology for the reservation itself, for the tribe itself. Mm-hmm. And he really um, he really helps with that. And um, his father, Chris Finley, too, they help with the, the field school. And so I, I knew he was the person to go to because he totally understood, you know, archaeology and the indigenous perspective. So I knew I knew he was definitely the person that I wanted to work with. And yeah, he's he's just a great guy. Mm-hmm. So wait, is that where your field school was? I noticed mm-hmm. that you went to the Crow Field School, but was that a separate yeah, field school from your original one? Yeah, that was separate. I uh, volunteered there um, the summer of 2016. Um, it was pretty great, you know, just helping wherever they needed me. Um, but my field school was actually near the Snake River um, in Idaho. And we actually excavated a bison jump site, and that was pretty awesome. Yeah. How how are the two field schools different? Well, different location. Because um, uh, the Crow Reservation's more on the Plains area. The southern end of Idaho, where the Snake River goes oh, okay. through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right. it's a great right. basin, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about the fact that it was... The one was done through the the Crow Tribal Historic Preservation Office, right? And then the other one was done through a university. Did you notice any differences in the approach because of that? Oh, definitely. I, I had a good time at my field school um, in Idaho. But, you know, the Crow tribe, they really wanted to incorporate the traditional aspect of archaeology into what the students were learning. And that's one thing that I was really, really happy to be a part of, um, just because I knew that something like that would really take off if the Navajo Nation ever decided to do that. Mm -hmm. It goes back to this idea of, you know, indigenous people doing the archaeology themselves, you know. And so I really... I really thought that was just amazing because, you know, they had their own talks and discussions on, okay, you come up on a, an archaeological site. You look at it, you look at it, okay, what's represented there, both tribally and archaeologically? And, you know, it was just a great balance of that. Every single site we went to. All right. Well, we are already at our first break. <laughs> All right. Well, we will be back in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. are back so as i mentioned in your intro (laughs) you have quite the range of experience so let's move next to your research experiences which you have quite a lot on quite wide-ranging subjects (laughs) (laughs) okay mapping and um you know geoarchaeology um I mean, it's impressive, just the the width and width. No, that's wrong. Width and breadth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so can you talk some about about all of those experiences? 
Let's see. One of my favorite experiences was near the Dinosaur National Park. Um, James. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent a decent amount of time there. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah. Let me just do a quick PSA and say, if if you're ever in the in the area, Dinosaur is amazing. Like the archaeology is just super impressive, especially for what you would expect for a national park that's obviously known for its dinosaurs. <laughs> um, but it's the archaeology is really impressive. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, there's a lot of Fremont archaeology in that area. <laughs> Specifically yes, in yeah. uh, Jones Hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was pretty awesome. Um, we were doing some monitoring for the national park in that area. And oh my goodness, it was so beautiful. So beautiful. You have the Fremont um, pictographs that mm-hmm. have, you know, the really mm-hmm. broad shoulders and kind of like the the V-shaped body. Um, yeah. And it's incredible how far up they place these mm-hmm. it's crazy um and like how big some of them are and yeah. how far away you can see some of them from it's just impressive yeah like it was pretty dangerous because you know we had to go up to each you know panel and mm-hmm. rock face just to you know record them and kind of see like you know the erosion process of them and it was pretty, I'd say it's some, some areas are pretty dangerous, but <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the love of archaeology, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, that was probably my, one of my favorites. Um, beautiful area, location. And, you know, it's pretty awesome because, you know, one of the major reasons, you know, the Fremont lived in that area was for the farming you know, because they had the the creeks right there to um, water their corn. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a really beautiful area. Um, right, and that aspect seems to get a lot ignored a lot. The the Fremont farming, if I understand correctly, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of like alcoves that had rock art in them, but also some of them we'd run into like wattle and daub. So they were actually, you know storing their corn in some of these alcoves and that was pretty awesome because you know you know in the in the daub you can actually see the fingerprints yeah 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 nothing that quite like evokes a feeling of of humanity is looking at somebody's fingerprints from a thousand years ago exactly that's so wild like you know you're just like oh cool mesmerized by all these beautiful works of art and yet you know you see something like that and it definitely humbles you in terms of like how they were living and, you know, their means of survival. Yeah. How did you, you've had all these different research experiences in more of an academic setting. How does that differ from say a CRM setting? Dramatically. I love scholarly archaeology just because, you know, you can take your time with it. You can really analyze whatever material you're working with, the sediment, you know, your photographs, your maps, even just exploring the area, you know. And, you know, you're able to do everything that you need to in the field, like take photographs, make maps. Um, take samples, and even in the lab, you're able to work in the lab um, and see the artifacts, watch the artifacts, and, you know, catalog them. It's really quick-paced because, you know, they need to get this done. They need to get the data recovery done, you know, for a pipeline or, you know, building or whatever. Um, So it's definitely a faster pace, and it's crunch time. And, you know, not everybody gets to map or take photographs, you know, it's all trying to save time and get the work done in time for the main project. Um, So it definitely differs in in the sense of data recovery and all that good stuff. Yeah. What are the different aspects of CRM that you have done? Like, I mean, it's you've 
worked in the lab, you've done survey, you've done excavation, you've done monitoring. Can you explain for you what each of those types of experiences has been like, um, you know, for somebody that maybe is interested in CRM but doesn't know the kind of, like, what does working in a lab mean? What does doing a survey mean? What does doing an excavation mean? Just like a real quick overview of, of that kind of work that you've done in CRM? With CRM, depending on, you know, the project, um, it varies, but um, usually before excavation, way before data collection, you know, you, you start the process of, okay, mapping the area, what area, what areas need to be surveyed. Um, so you usually go through survey first and, you know, have people within their own transects and kind of looking on the surface for archaeological, you know, artifacts or features and recording those on the surface. And after it's usually testing. So usually, you know, digging trenches to kind of see like the profile of the sediment of like certain areas where archaeological sites are found or were previously recorded just to kind of get a greater grasp on what's below the surface. Um, and usually based off those testing um, trenches, that's usually where we find bigger features like pit houses or, you know, hearths or, you know, whatever you may have there. Um, and from there, we go off of that and we go into data recovery. Mm -hmm. And so data recovery, you know, it depends on what kind of feature you're working with or, you know, what you're actually seeing, because it's very subjective, um, especially when you don't know what, what's under, you know, the surface. Um, so after that's all done, you know, you go into mapping and then GIS, but also all the data, all the artifacts and samples, they get collected and, you know, they go into the lab and they get processed and tested and analyzed and cataloged. So that's, that's, pretty much the the whole gist of it um mm -hmm. um in, in the lab you know you're washing artifacts you're trying to see it in greater detail you know without all the sediment on them and you know just it's really about organization and you know maintaining your methodology when you're in the field what about monitoring oh yeah monitoring a lot mm -hmm. um so monitoring usually takes place you know once data data recovery is done with and you know we give give the okay to put in a pipeline or you know whatever else so whenever they're digging an area where archaeological sites were found they always need a monitor there and the monitor there the monitor is there to just like see if there's anything we missed or if, you know if they go into greater depths in the ground, we're just there to kind of stop them to prevent, you know, further destruction of whatever, whatever else is there. Mm -hmm. So it's really just kind of like protecting what we may have not, you know, come to see or analyze. So that's, that's basically the gist of monitoring just to prevent that but also you know if we do come against come across something you know we have to be the ones there to you know halt the movements around that area just to prevent the you know destruction of the feature mm -hmm. and you know be the ones to record and kind of like follow the chain of command going up to you know the state yeah and okay that's one thing i'm personally curious about since i've never been an archaeology monitor is what is the threshold, I guess, for what actually makes something stop? I mean, obviously, human remains or anything associated would be, like, no question stopping. Right. But, like, like it's the Southwest. There's, I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody putting in a backhoe just about anywhere and not pulling up pottery and lithics and... I mean, so at what point, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not an archaeologist. So what, like, at what point do you say, okay, no, no, this is like, you have to stop. Mm -hmm. So we usually go based off of the National Register. Mm -hmm. 
So anything that, you know, is, you know, pretty extensive, like if you you come across like a, a ceramic or, you know, a fragment of a ceramic or whatever, mm-hmm. that's usually okay. I mean, like you want to stop and analyze and check just to make sure. But if it's just that, then it's, it's okay. Um, Like a dark staining, you know, from charcoal to see if there's like a hearth. So any, mm-hmm. anything that would look like a feature. So something big, you know. Okay that is classified as a feature that's usually Mm -hmm. when the halting happens okay yeah so okay between those different types of crm work that you mentioned which one was your favorite Mm, that's a hard one (laughs) (laughs) it's a hard one because before i came back home in um 2016 is when i came back home so before then i was usually in the great basin area or the plains and so coming back home and actually doing archaeology in my backyard was pretty great. <laughs> it was pretty yeah, great. Yeah. So it's hard to, you know, just say, oh, this one was better because it's all amazing archaeology. Because, you know, to be human is to have that variation. Right. Just like, you know, how we are today. This person likes that. This person likes that, you know this person built their house this way, this person built, you know, whatever else mm-hmm. this way, you know, there's that human variation. So to see it in that setting, it just, I don't know, it just kind of gave me chills because, you know, that's, that's the human aspect of it, of archaeology, is that mm-hmm. variation there of how, how they decided to build their homes, you know, what they decided mm-hmm. to place in their homes or, you know, structure inside their homes, if there was a bench or, you know, their fireplace was this area in this area, you know. So it's really hard to say that just because they're all very unique in their own way. What was that like coming home and and working at home again? <laughs> was, being so far away. It was, it was, I really liked it. Um, just because, you know, with me being Dene. So a little background story, um, scientists really don't see Dene, the Dene people as being like ancestors or the, you know, related to the ancestral Puebloans or, you know, the Anasazi. I mean, they call them the, just the ancestral Puebloans rather than Anasazi. But um, it's funny because in our oral history and a lot of like the songs and the teachings, we are actually related to them so being in this area and doing archaeology I always kept that in my mind so yeah I had to be super respectful because you know I was raised traditional I was raised to leave you know archaeological sites alone artifacts alone and so in the teachings their spirits are still within their home area, you know, because um, for at least for Dine, you know, we're a matrilineal society. So everything revolves around the woman. Their homes revolve around the woman. So, you know, a lot of the archaeological sites were pit houses. So they're homes. And so that's the, the women, women's domain. You have to have reverence, you know, you don't, you wouldn't like it if someone came to your house and started, you know, moving things or digging up things. So, you know, you really have to present yourself in a certain manner. And before I I went to, you know, the sites, I always like made sure and I protected myself just incorporating what I know as my identity and my tradition, I kind of mesh that into like my work. And so that was very different in terms of like, you know, coming out here and doing archeology span in my home setting. And, you know, of course, of course I was like that with, you know, the other sites I was working on in the plains or the Great Basin area, but, here in my home, you know, it's different because that's where I'm rooted from. This is this is where I come from and this is where my family comes from. So I knew that there was like a stronger presence of 
the spirituality here on this land because, you know, we value our land and our earth and everything in this environmental setting as Diné people, as Native people. And especially here because the work that I I did was within our four, four sacred mountains. So I knew that that was, you know, a major thing for me to keep in mind is that reverence. Well, and I wonder too, because, you know, when I met you, when you were working on this project, not too far from your home, there was other Diné people working on the project as well. And I'm wondering if having, I don't know, almost like a community within the CRM firm, if that made it feel more like you could approach the archaeology in the way that you wanted to, or it made, you know, the other people working with you feel more open to what you were doing or, or anything like that. I don't, I don't know exactly, but if that affected the experience as well. Yes, for sure it did. I, I definitely felt more comfortable. You know, I could, I could be myself. And I say that um, because, you know, like what we previ- previously talked about um, in the first part of the podcast is, you know, the difference in social dynamics. And it definitely is different between Native people and everyone else. So having, you know, my Indigenous co-workers there, it made me feel comfortable, but I also knew that I could kind of bounce around ideas with them and say, you know, my thoughts. And we always had visitors there, too. So either from the Navajo Nation, Acoma, or, you know, Zuni. Or random people like me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that was great because they also had incorporations. You know, I would I would talk with them. I would do my work, but I would also talk with them, you know, to kind of let them know that, you know, I'm interested in what you have to say. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, I have, mm-hmm. I have, I have my own thoughts, but you know, it varies too. Like even within the indigenous communities, each family has their own way of doing things, their own way of having their song sung or, you know, traditional aspects. It's all different. It, It's all different within our tribe. So it was nice to, you know, hear perspectives from my tribe, but also, you know, Akma and Zuni. Well, on that note... We are at our second break time already. So again, we will be back here in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right, we are back again. So... Let's keep talking a little bit about what your experience was like in CRM. You know, you were talking about what it was like working with your Diné coworkers and on your homeland. Did you have any other experiences in CRM that per- felt like particularly relevant? Yes, or any stories from working on your homeland? Yeah. Um, so there was this really interesting time where we were actually working out near 
uh, black the Blanco Canyon area, mm-hmm. and um, we were you know excavating and working, and then we went into lunch. And during that time, there was actually a coyote that came up to the side area, and that was pretty interesting. Um, and you know, I from what I've learned, you know, coyotes they're not necessarily bad animals in terms of you know Diné belief. They're more like um, animals who warn us to kind of kind of give us the heads up of, you know, something that may happen or whatever. So okay. seeing the coyote, I immediately kind of like, you know, did my own little prayer, but also I gave it an offering because it was within the area and it wasn't really going away anytime soon. Even with people there? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there was like a whole group of us. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. And um, so I, after, once I left work, the field, um, I called up my mom and my my uncle. And they're both, you know, pretty traditional. They're really traditional people. You know, they they know the, the ceremonial setting. And I told them about this. And they were saying, well, it's probably, you know, the spirit who came back to just, like, see what we were doing, what we were up to. Like of the people that were there before? Basically. Yeah, the, you know, the, the site that we were digging, the, the home area that we were digging into, it was probably, you know, them coming back to see, you know, what we were messing around with or, you know, what. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the most interesting thing to have that archaeological and cultural setting for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. You, I mean, coming back after you know, hundreds of years and being like, what are these people doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was bizarre, you know, like there's a whole group of us and he was just, you know, hanging around. Yeah, that's crazy. Did any, I mean, what did other people say? Did people have the same kind of reaction or? (laughs) No. No. It's really funny, you know, like I gave an offering, you know, just like a piece of food or whatever. And one of my coworkers you know, they're getting on me about, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't feed the animals because then they become dependent. And so I was like, <laughs> I was like, I understand, but like, you know, this is, this is a cultural thing. And so I, I just explained it to her, but yeah, this, you know, this pretty, pretty crazy. Like everybody else thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah. So you were working on a project and it was, I mean, it seemed like a pretty good mix of like there was um, a good number of Diné people and then a good number of obviously not Diné people, uh, you know, Bilagana, if we'll, if we'll say. <laughs> uh-huh. um, <laughs> how do you think people's reaction, like the other archaeologists that you were working with, do you feel like they were open to learning about, you know, Diné culture and how that tied into archaeology? Do you feel like... Um, I don't know. What was that experience like? It was a little, a little frustrating because, you know, I mean, they were definitely willing to listen if I were, if I was vocal about it, but it's Mm -hmm. not like they were thinking about that aspect of it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Really? Um, Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know, everyone's nice in their own way, but you know, right. It's like, two sides of me so it's not like I ever lost my archaeological sense or my cultural sense so it was always with me um and you know whenever I would say something about whatever you know what whether it be cultural or archaeological you know not always that people like understand or you know because because they they feel like well I studied this I know what I'm doing I know what I'm talking about and that, that's fine for the most part you know but it, then again it's the whole not incorporating the you know the indigenous cultural aspect of it into archaeology if this is touchy then we can move on you know did you feel like there was a different response maybe with with you and your coworkers that were Danae versus you know the the Zuni or the Akma people that came to visit? Surprisingly, no. No? Okay. No, because it's like we're all different tribes, but when we shared stories and ideas, it kind of like always overlapped. 
And so that was like the really interesting thing about it is, you know, there was always some sort of connection between whatever we had to say. No, no, but I mean, like from your non-Indigenous coworkers, like, you know, because like you were talking about, there's this whole, you know, Anasazi versus Ancestral Pueblo. And like, do you feel like that there was, you know, like there's this tricky thing um, that you see in anthropology where like a lot of archaeologists will definitely not all of them <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a lot of them that will only take oral history if it goes with what the science tells them you know like oh this oral history is legitimate and this oral history isn't basically kind of yeah because mm-hmm. i mean they're more interested in the facts and what they're actually seeing mm-hmm. versus you know the underlying, you know, interpretation of it. Because mm-hmm. there's, there's one interesting thing that my uncle always talked to me about, because, you know, I was a student learning about, you know, the 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 correspondence between Mesoamerica, archaeology, and, you know, the Southwest area. Mm-hmm. And kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, the ball cords and the door shapes and stuff like that. Right. And I was talking to him and I was saying, uncle, like, why do you, why do you think, you know, they made their doors that way. And I genuinely, you know, I genuinely wanted to know. And the first thing that he said to me is like, honey, he's like, you're, you're thinking too much like an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. reason why they made their doors that way is so they could fit their, you know, their headdresses through to, to, for the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And that's one time where, you know, I really like was like, whoa, like, yeah, like I didn't realize that. And, yeah, it just it kind of took me off guard because I always ha- seemed to always I always had to somehow balance the two, you know, because what I was learning, I was it was getting pumped into me um, about you know archaeology, anthropology, and kind of the study of you know being away from that cultural aspect of me, you know, moving away from the reservation. I kind of forgot you know some things but then once I moved home I had to like bring it all back um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah but I mean like I'm not you know I'm not very shy like if people want to ask me questions I'm like totally willing to like you know let them know you know stories or whatever you know just kind of inform them like I'm totally willing to do that but you know people want to be their own people you know they want to know their own things so well what advice would you give others in CRM about how to better work with indigenous colleagues and then vice versa, I suppose too. Yeah. Like I would probably say like, you know, just communicate, you know, we're mm-hmm. all human and no one's better than anyone else. Um, But, you know, just, just having that reverence, I think for both sides, I think is really helpful. What about, what would you, where would you like to see CRM go? Like, how would you, if you saw it in the future, what would it look like in your, you know, if you, if it looked like what you wanted it to look like? I would like CRM to, hmm. well, the good thing about the company that I worked for is they were super willing to kind of bridge that gap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm not really sure if like most CRM companies would allow, you know, indigenous groups to come and visit whenever, you know, they like. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, and definitely like, I think that's one thing that my company really worked hard at doing is, you know, incorporating that and keeping, maintaining that connection between the archaeologists and indigenous people. And so moving forward, I would say just, you know, really taking into consideration the respect that we have for cultural resources and our land and our area and kind of just as archaeologists realizing that and kind of presenting themselves in that same manner, you know, Mm -hmm. and just like keeping in mind that, you know, whenever you're holding something like an artifact or something, you know, that that was made 
either for practical use or ceremonial use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you find things and you don't really know where that, that line is drawn, but you know, there's always that, that notion of, okay, well, this may be cultural in the ceremonial sense, or it may be cultural in the, you know, everyday use or whatever. And it's just like, you never really know. So having that reverence, you know, that's kind of an important thing to me. And I would say, you know, for a lot of indigenous archaeologists. So, okay, if you could offer three pieces of advice, and this could be either to people who are looking to work with tribes or descendant communities or, you know, upcoming indigenous archaeologists or, I don't know, the... Um, the general public and anthropology, <laughs> what three pieces of advice would you give? I would say don't assume too much going in because, you know, no matter where you go and no matter who you talk to, you're always going to learn more. <clears throat> and that's going to broaden your perspective as an individual. And if you're broadened as an individual, you know, you're going to go and share that, that knowledge and it's going to, you know, fold. So that's, it, it grows in that way. And I would say just knowing that we all have our differences and knowing that not all our differences are bad things. For me, I'm, I was brought up in a, a home and my, you know, my grandparents, they didn't know English. My mom and my older sisters, their first language was Navajo. So I was always kind of brought around, brought up, you know, with the Navajo language and the accent and stuff like that. So pronouncing, you know, scientific words and stuff like that. Sometimes I would get tongue tied because a lot, a bit of that would come out. And so I would say, like, that was probably one thing that kind of really dawned on me because, you know, people would correct correct me when I would talk about, you know, a lot of scientific things. And, like, it's not like, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about. It was just that, you know, my my accent would come out or, you know my thought process on my language would come, you know, in a different way. Right. And so, you know, kind of keeping that in mind, you know, dealing with indigenous people and then also, you know, thinking about how we are as humans and kind of like speaking to one another in, you know, a respectable manner. Like I'm all about respect. And I think that was embedded in me from, you know, a really young age from, you know, my family members, both mm -hmm. my father and my mother um, and their families, because, I mean, respect is such an important thing. You know, you don't know what someone's going through or you don't know what they've experienced. And we're all products of our own environment, but yet we can also, you know, establish a good foundation to go forward, you know? Okay. This is might seem like a little bit of an odd switch after, you know, like you're saying these really <laughs> profound things. <laughs> um, but I'm just personally really curious. Um, okay. So what inspired you to switch from anthropology to, to GIS for your master's? I'm, I'm curious if there's like, if it was more like practical, like, oh, there's, you know, more GIS jobs or something like that. Or if it was more like something about, um, you know, mapping and and the attachment to place and things like that, that really drew you to it. Okay. Yeah. So it's really interesting actually, um, because you think about archeological sites and the best locations for them, everything's so spatial, you know, and I think that's a really good way. And I'm sure other people know this, but it's a, an amazing way to go forth and produce data especially for archaeology. Um, there's two things that I really love. Um, it's li LIDAR and um, uh, photogrammetry. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of archaeological 
companies and even in the scholarly sector of archaeology, they're starting to incorporate that a lot more. So with LIDAR, you can actually see, you know, things that are hidden to the, you know, the human eye. Um, for instance, um, my company, we actually wanted to use LIDAR to kind of get a good sense of where the Chacoan roads are. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of them. And where we were working, you could actually see one of them. And so that kind of like gave us the idea of like, hey, let's do LIDAR and kind of see how extensive this area is. Because, I mean, Chaco is a ways away. But, you know, this area is still within the Chaco and settlement. So we were really curious to see how far the, the roads extended to. And mm -hmm. for photogrammetry, you know, you can get like the whole 3D image of, say, like a pit house or, um, you know, rock art. And it gives you a totally different experience when you're looking at these photographs. And my company actually utilized that a lot, um, this past project that we were working on. And, you know, just like kind of that, like really drew me into GIS because I've always liked it and I've always used it, you know, making maps and kind of utilizing the technology in that manner. Um, but, you know, I just knew that if I did GIS, that it would give me a stronger sense of like location, archaeological location, but also like the technology. Because mm -hmm. our technology mm -hmm. and our methods and producing archaeological data, not producing archaeological data, but, you know, our methods, our methodology and incorporating all that technology into it gives you a stronger sense of methodology and actually what we're finding. Because all when you're doing CRM, it's all this data collection and, you know, then everything gets taken out if it's in that path of, you know, excavation, uh, the mass excavation. So having those intensive documentations, I think that really helps us in terms of like archiving and using them in museums. So just that technology, it just, I don't know, it just excited me and thinking about using it in archaeology. And I don't know, I just really wanted to kind of utilize that. Um, one of my coworkers, uh, his name is Ben Hammer. He actually, you know, introduced me into the Mass GIS program at ASU. And I really like it. And in a lot of our discussions in class, I always, you know, talk about archaeology and GIS. So it, it, it really goes hand in hand. And the great thing about archaeology is you can always utilize some sort of science. Well, man, I should have asked you that earlier because <laughs> there's plenty more that we could talk about there. <laughs> and for anyone that's interested in um, these types of, of technology issues, we just had a podcast episode on technology. Let me just see real quick what number that was. And we specifically talked about LIDAR is one of those. So it's episode 25. So if you're interested in hearing more about this topic, go check that one out as well. But in the meantime, we have to cut this one off, sadly. <laughs> but thank you so much again, Rebecca, for coming on the show. And yeah, of course. Yeah, we appreciate having you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share it with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.com Org. Or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to my co-hosts Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.